Hey dog people of the internet, welcome to Cog Dog Radio, a podcast all about dog sports, behavior, and training. I'm your host, Sarah Stremming of the Cognitive Canine, and I can't wait to share my behavior cases, training revelations, and general geekery with you. Let's get started. In this crossover episode with the Functional Breeding Podcast, Dr. Jessica Heckman and I take a deep dive into what it truly means for a dog to be functional. Jessica is the mastermind behind the Functional Dog Collaborative. She's a veterinarian with a PhD in genetics who has spent the last several years researching the genetics of behavior. For more on Dr. Heckman and her work, be sure to head to dogzombie.com as well as functionalbreeding.org. This is a fun conversation between two friends who don't always see the world the exact same way, and I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. Okay, so today we are talking about what the word functional actually means because Jessica, as founder of functional dog collaborative this is a word that people get caught up on sometimes when i was founding the fdc i spent a lot of time writing up what sort of the guidelines were for how how we were suggesting people breed dogs which by the way is not the only way to breed dogs it's just a the way that we wanted to talk about um and so that we we came up with the word functional and i I tried hard to come up with a word that wasn't in common usage. And there, there are definitely uses for the word functional as regards dog breeding already. So it wasn't a, a perfect selection, but I, I was trying to pick a word that didn't have a good definition already and then provide it with my own definition, which is that is available on our website, that definition. But you know, we'll talk about it here. I'm going to dive into kind of what I see as the common hangups that people have are. And then maybe we can get into what it actually says. Yeah, what it actually says. So one thing that dog people struggle with is the word functional. They want functional to mean something different for different dogs. Essentially, dog people want to say what's functional for a pug is not the same as what's functional for a Alaskan Husky. Right. Right. So... They want to say, you know, running miles and miles a day at top speed is what functional is for an Alaskan Husky versus laying on the couch and not doing much and maybe not being able to make it around the block if it's a hot day out is functional for a pug. Yeah, and that's that's exactly so when I said that the word was already a bit in use, that was where I messed up because I didn't think of that particular usage of the word. So I am using it in a different way. So there's our definition of functional, which we'll talk about. And then there's this idea that dogs are bred to do a job and they should, you know, and that job may be sitting on the couch and they should be good at that job, but that is separate. That is a whole separate thing. So what we're talking about is there's sort of this baseline health and behavior, which we're talking about is functional, just like basically functional, right? Basic life functionality. Yeah. Because you're not saying the height of functionality is running miles and miles and miles a day. You're not saying like you're. Right, we are not the husky dog collaborative. Yeah, because right? you're not the right. You're not the <laughs> sled dog collaborative. You are talking about this really bare bones level of functionality. Yes. So what is that? 
Yeah, so we cover physical health and behavioral health. So could start with physical health. Yes. And this was one of those things where like I I wanted to be able to give people a list of, you know, things that they should be able to produce in their breeding program. And and people would like a list like that. Like that's convenient, right? Is to be able to have a checklist and be like, you know, I have this incidence of cancer check. It's it's below the the line check. But things are not that simple when you're breeding dogs, of course. And so I ended up basically saying you shouldn't have any increased health problems in the population of dogs that you're breeding, sort of compared to the rest of dogdom. So I know some people have been asking things like, well, what does that mean? Like village dogs, like brown street dogs? How would we even know? So right. what I'm, is the general? Yeah, what is dogdom? And I didn't say dogdom in the statements, right? <laughs> but no, um, we're saying it here. Yeah, so I'm trying to, and I'm, I'm I'm making some edits based on some of the feedback that I've been getting from people. So what I mean when I talk about sort of comparing to all dogs, I'm adding these words in on the website, so it should be more clear to people is that we're comparing your breeding population to purebred and mixed breed dogs as a whole, and we're talking about dogs that are owned dogs, not feral dogs. Because feral dogs, like we get, we have no idea what their health status is Mm -hmm. also they don't have probably the same nutrition and veterinary care so we're talking about owned dogs but we're not talking about a particular breed or a particular mix we're talking about just that whole mass of dogs together yeah so i made a list of of actual things to to look at right so i'll we can go through that together so the first one is equal or increased physical comfort compared to dogs as a whole. And so we list out ability to breathe, move freely and without pain, equal or increased ability to reproduce naturally, equal or reduced rate of genetic disease, equal or reduced rate of morphology related disease, meaning disease directly or indirectly caused by the dog's form, such as physical shape, structure, coat, et cetera, equal or increased health span, including physical comfort, and equal or increased lifespan. So the health span being how long the dog is healthy, recognizing that in old age, you may not be healthy, but continue to live. And so how long the dog is healthy is interesting. And then also equal or increased lifespan, because how long the dog actually lives is interesting. And when you're saying, you know, basically equal or less than, like no no increased um, presence of these things, how do you know? What are you actually comparing to? Right. That's such a good question. So when I wrote these, I was sort of thinking, well, you know, it's it's going to be hard to get actual numbers, but people should be people should people will have a general feel like you'll you'll know. And that's something else that people have asked is like, well, well, what are you actually talking about? How do we actually know? So the scientific literature helps us out with lifespan in a pretty straightforward way. There's a, there's a couple of different papers out there. Um, there's one that I'm going to add on to the website from 2020 called Lifespan of Companion Dogs Seen in Three Independent Primary Care Veterinary Clinics in the United States. And that gives us some actual numbers. And I'm going to give the numbers for different sizes of dogs because we know that dogs of different sizes tend to live different lengths on average. And so what they measured was mean survival time. So that is just you know, a term for how old the dog is when it dies. So they found it on average to be 16.2 years for small dogs, 15.9 years for medium-sized dogs, 
14.6 years for large dogs and 13.4 years for giant dogs. So that to me is a useful goal to aim for that if your breeding population is dying around 10 years, that's a lot less than you might be able to hope for. We can state that that is less from the data we have than the general population of dogs. Yes, and this is one paper. So people could certainly suggest that, you know, these, so it's three independent primary care veterinary clinics. You could take a look at the paper and say, this is not representative. And I want to, you know, come back with some other data that's more representative. I mean, again, like I am not going to, I'm not a hard ass about this. Well, certainly I'm not sitting here like, Waving my magic wand saying, you're functional and you're not. Um, (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. You're not wearing like a, I'm seeing like a hat, like a witch's hat sort of thing. No, I'm not. I'm not waving my wand and deeming anything functional, not functional. Like nobody's doing that. But what does happen is that people on the Facebook group will discuss uh, particular ways of breeding and suggest that um, it would be closer to the goals of the FDC to breed a different way. And perhaps this particular breeding population with a life expectancy of eight years, that that's not an acceptable life expectancy. And so like, I'm not going to say like, well, we're talking about large dogs, so they should be 14.6 years old on average. Like, right. But that gives you sort of an idea of what you're aiming for and that eight is just a lot less than that. And people can come up with other data. One of the things I, I would say is that if you come up with data that's only from one breed or only from purebred dogs, not including mixed breed dogs, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for something, again, that sort of represents all of owned dogdom, both mixed breed um, F1s, multi-gen mixes, and purebreds altogether. So. And if a breeder, let's say that I am breeding, let's say I'm breeding golden retrievers and I'm assuming golden retrievers would fit into that medium size category. Maybe I would, I would think of, I think of like um, spaniels as being medium size and, and retrievers is tending to be large. Okay. So maybe we didn't include, maybe giant is like not in that data set. And that's, that's cool. Cause I was thinking large being very large. (laughs) So they have small, medium, large, and giant. So I would think small is a chihuahua, medium size is a spaniel or a border collie. Large is a retriever and giant is a mastiff, a great Dane, something like that. Sure. So let's say I'm breeding goldens and that's in the large category. And so 13 and a half ish years is kind of average for the general population of dogs that are that size. And let's say though that I am, my breeding population of dogs averages out at about like 10 or 11. Yeah. And that I care about that and I track that and I try to breed two dogs that are related to dogs that lived longer. Or maybe I use semen from dogs who have passed and now I know how old they were when they passed, et cetera. And I'm really shooting for it, but I'm not getting better than like 10 or 11. But I consider myself still aiming for this piece of functionality and doing a good job of it because the general population of golden retrievers might average lower than what I'm producing talk about that argument a little bit that if I'm breeding goldens that live to 11 amongst goldens who only live to be eight, aren't I doing a better job? Isn't that good enough? Yeah, you're definitely doing a better job. And that is 
it's just a different approach than the approach that I'm talking about. So when I'm talking about this word functional that I made up the definition for, I'm talking about basically, again, it's not per breed, it's per all of dogdom. So you are doing better than the rest of Goldens, and that's great. But if you're not doing sort of as well, sort of comparably to the rest of dogdom, then I would not wave my magic wand at you and say that you're functional. You are doing a great job within the particular approach to breeding that you're choosing, which is a different approach to breeding than what we're talking about here. Because what you might be talking about is while, you know, actually with an outcross, you probably would produce yeah. a longer lived Yeah, dog. I mean, and it's, it's a trade-off, right? So yeah. if you want a really typey golden, an outcross is not going to get you that. I recognize that. So it is, that is the question is, are you breeding for a strict type and you are willing to sacrifice some of the stuff that we're talking about here, longevity, and we'll get into genetic disease and things like that. Adhering to strict type and then trying to get as close to the rest as you can within the strict type boundary is how you breed. That's just different from what we're talking about. If you, for whatever reason, want to have me wave my magic wand at you and say you're functional, I am not sure how you would do that, honestly, with a golden retriever without outcrossing. And that's, I mean, that's why I have stopped getting goldens, right? Like my first dog was a golden and he was wonderful. And the health problems in the breed have caused me to walk away from it. Sure. And I think that to certainly save me, but maybe not you, but definitely me from certain emails, I'd like to state for the record that we kind of picked golden retriever because they're easy to pick on. But I fully recognize that I'm not familiar with every single breeding program of golden retrievers on the entire earth. And I also fully recognize that some people are doing like we talked about comparatively, a really fantastic job yes. versus others. Reading the way that you're talking about though, wouldn't necessarily be done within like the confines of the closed stud book and the goal of type, et cetera. Right, exactly. Yeah, and I, and I think that's a good point to make is I wanna make clear that I do applaud people who are doing better than average, who are you know producing dogs who are doing better than others in their breed. I'm I'm not saying they're bad people. I'm saying there's a there's a different choices that other mm -hmm. people make. And how about if we support those people and say that they're breeding responsibly even though they're not breeding within closed stud books, which has been for many of us the sort of a a baseline that if it's not a closed stud book then it's not a responsible breeding. Um and I think we're a lot of a lot of the population is getting away from that these days, but there's still a large proportion of people who are in dogs and very passionate about dogs who still really feel that way. Very true. And let's back up a little bit though and hit some of these points and kind yes. of talk about where they came from because I think that we could like really spin down the rabbit hole of the status of purebred dogs right, in the right. world right. and that's so not should, really what we're trying to do we could no. and maybe we will <laughs> so later, we should talk about the other points and not forget about behavioral health as well so let's get into behavioral health um in a minute because obviously that's my favorite thing but how did you select some of these things so you stated being able to 
breathe and move freely without pain. Like, what the hell, Jessica? Are people like, where did that even come from? I'm saying what the hell as far as like the voices of the masses saying, what do you mean? <laughs> of course, people are not breeding dogs that can't breathe or are in pain. Are you setting me up to get out emails? Yeah, you know, it's okay. <laughs> just just, not, just like, not like you don't already. Yeah, so there are definitely populations of dogs that are bred with specific morphology choices. And with the you know ability to breathe, we're talking about dogs with very flat faces. And there again, I think there are a lot of people, you know, brachycephalics. And so there's a lot of readers who are, passionate about their brachycephalic breed and feel that they are able to move towards the dogs being able to breathe freely while maintaining that very flat face. And that if the dogs are well-bred, because uh, brachycephalic obstructive airway syndrome, which is what we're talking about, the, the difficulty with breathing freely, is not only about the short muzzle, there's a lot of other physiological stuff that goes into it as well. And so theoretically, you can have the short muzzle and still have a dog that breathes freely. However, the short muzzle is strongly correlated with having difficulty breathing freely, probably because a lot of the other issues, which are sort of, you know, deep, you know, deeper in the throat or uh, the closed nostrils, those are sort of physiologically tied to having the, the shorter muzzle. Mm-hmm. So, so similarly to how we talked about lifespan, um, there is an argument that I can move my population of dogs towards being able to breathe freely and or most of my dogs are able to breathe freely, although not quite all of them. Um, and that's better than people who are not trying at all and who are producing dogs that, you know, that almost all the dogs in the litter, for example, have real trouble breathing. And so here again, I would say it's fantastic that there are people out there who are doing better than the average. But what we're talking about is fixing the breathing problem first, presumably by outcrossing to something with a longer muzzle so that 100% of the puppies in the first generation can breathe freely and then going back and trying to move back to type if you want to, but making sure that you are never producing litters where there are any dogs that can't breathe freely. And essentially the functional dog collaborative has the audacity to state that dogs should be able to breathe that that's part of functionality yeah i thought it was pretty basic yeah i you know might think that as well but yeah and then move freely and without pain so there we're talking about you know hip dysplasia mostly and there are some breeds that just have a large percentage of hip dysplasia but that it's not sort of tied into the breed there are some breeds that are, you know, they're selecting for certain morphological choices that make it more likely that the dog will have hip dysplasia. And so that, again, would be something that you could fix in pretty much one generation. So a lot of this, again, I mean, I'm not always talking about outcrossing. I think there are plenty of breeds out there where you can breed within the closed stud book and, and breed to this standard, but not all of them. Yeah. And the Honestly, the ability to move around without pain is a really interesting one to me because I know quite a few, there's quite a few breeds that I could name that I think there's a higher than average occurrence of things like lumbosacral spondylosis. They develop it later though. So like they are fine and then they experience back pain later on. 
in their life. Right. So for instance, you'd be pretty hard pressed actually to find a retired agility border collie past like the age of eight or nine that didn't have any incidents of that, according mm-hmm. to the sources that I have access to. That doesn't mean that all those dogs are symptomatic. And what's interesting then to me is that choices start to get made about that health span uh, kind of consideration. Like, well, but if I get five good solid competition years out of this dog and then the dogs the rest of their life they can't move freely without pain but they could early like this starts to get this starts to get really complicated and I feel like Mm -hmm. where I'm going with it right is essentially that the FDC's statements on this are that part of your breeding goals should include that the dog can move freely without pain for its for the majority of its lifespan, like that we care about lifespan and health span. Right. And that certainly we don't want it unable to move freely without pain just due to its morphology. Right. But it starts to get, you know, the deeper we dig into it, and that's why we're having this conversation, because the deeper you dig into it, the harder this is to define and the harder it is to say, yes, this person has functional goals. Right. Versus this person maybe doesn't like the, the occurrence of things in my breed border collies that kind of continue to crop up and people continue to breed dogs anyway, like, like maybe the bitch is injured in her second or third year and she is now no longer an agility candidate. So she'll just be bred quite a few times and nobody talking about the fact that maybe there's a genetic component to the fact that she was so severely injured and you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like it's just, yeah. it gets really dark and twisty in here. And I'm, I would love to simplify it for people, but it's hard to. I mean, this is, and this is why we try to provide resources, right? So part of the original goals of the FTC were to say, if you're breeding in the sort of, I don't know what the right word is, the more mainstream way of, you know, there's a closed stud book and a breed club well, you have resources to go to. Your breed club is going to have a website with suggestions about what health tests should be. And you can look up how common certainly certain diseases are. And you have your whole community of other people breeding dogs like that, who you can talk to and say like, you know, how, what should I do when this particular thing happens? Is this dog a breeding candidate? And there's, you know, you may or may not agree with the advice that you get, but there will be people who've experienced that before and can give you some advice. There's a community. And if you walk away from that to do outcrossing, which was one of the things I was first thinking about when I was founding the FTC, then you don't have that community anymore. And in fact, there's it's very unlikely that anyone really knows the answers to how to really outcross well in the ways that we're talking about with dogs within your particular breed. There's other people out there maybe who've been doing it in other breeds. And so maybe you'd like to talk to them. Maybe that would be a new community for you to ask some of these questions. And that's what we're trying to provide. So these are goals, um, which is, and so it's very much why there's no, there's not a list of you have to do these health tests and you have to have this incidence of disease. Like it's, these are goals. And then we try to provide resources to help people work through how to get as close to them as they as they can. And I, I recognize that breeding is really complicated and that you have to make a lot of trade-offs and that sometimes things are going to happen and 
all of a sudden this genetic disease pops up in your population and you'd never seen it before. Like, I understand that that happens, but what I am saying is that it makes it harder to stay away from all of that when you're breeding in a population that already has a particular problem. You know, the population has a particular problem and you're staying within that population when moving away from that population will get you away from that problem very quickly that within what the kind of breeding that we're talking about these things this this health and welfare stuff is more important than type yes so one of the things that you mentioned is that the dogs the dogs that are being bred for function one of the goals would be to have a you know no no higher occurrence of genetic diseases than the general population of dogs what is a genetic disease yeah, so there's there's the really easy ones like von Willebrand's where we've, you know, there's like just one or two genes that affect it and it's very clear. And then there's the ones like cancer and DCM. And we know that they are at least partially mediated by genetics simply because they are at increased frequency in certain breeds. That's just one of the ways you can see it's a it's a closed population and there's more prevalence of this particular disease within this closed population, that's how we know that it's at least in part genetic, but they don't have a good solid genetic test where you could just run the test and be like, yes, this dog is going to get lymphoma. Yes, this dog is going to get DCM. I mean, DCM is a great example, right? Where there are genetic tests out there, but they don't explain a particularly large proportion of the dog's risk of developing DCM. Oh, sorry. DCM, dilated cardiomyopathy, uh, heart disease, which is not a lot of fun when your dog gets it and very lifespan reducing. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty tragic. So, so for me, genetic disease includes both the ones that you know, it's really obvious and easy and you can test for it. And also the ones like we know that cancer has a genetic component. It certainly also has an environmental component, right? And so certainly there are people, oh, let's pick on Goldens again. So Goldens have a very high prevalence of cancer where we've clocked them at about 70% of them are going to get cancer in their lifetimes, which is abnormally high. And there are people out there arguing that if you just feed them a raw diet, give them no vaccines, don't spay or neuter them and make sure they're not exposed to any toxins in their environment, they'll be fine. So I think all of those things probably do contribute more or less to your mm -hmm. risk of cancer. In the case of Goldens, I think their genetics contribute massively more to their risk of cancer as it happens. Uh, but all of those things together will contribute to anybody's risk of cancer. Um, and so that is a complex genetic trait, meaning there's environment and there's a bunch of different genes and it all interacts together. But what we're talking about is that genetic portion, the genetic risk. And we know that in some breeds, there's an increased genetic risk for some particular diseases, right? That's just known. And so how do we, how do we know? Right. So it's, it's really hard, right? Like we would like to have that magic number drop from the sky and tell us this is the exact number of golden retrievers that get lymphoma out of the total number of golden retrievers, like as a percentage. Um, and so that would be just to put some terminology in here, that would be the prevalence of lymphoma in golden retrievers or prevalence means the actual true number of how many, you know, whatever's get whatever. And we never get to know that, unfortunately. 
because we can't go out and, and ask that question of every single golden retriever in the world. What we do get to know is an estimate of it, the heart of epidemiology, called incidence, which is basically, well, we are able to count some number of cases, and we hope that that's representative. And so just to, to give people that perspective of while there is some true prevalence out there, there's going to be different reports with different incidences. And the heart of the problem is which of those do you trust? Because there may be one that says the incidence of lymphoma in golden retrievers is around 50%. And it may say that the incidence of lymphoma in the rest of dogdom, which is the number that is harder to get hold of, is 0.1%. And so that's your goal, right? But then you may find another paper that says the incidence of lymphoma in all of dogdom is more like 2%. And so which one do you believe? And you and I were actually talking about this earlier today where I was saying, oh, oh, I found this paper. And it tells us how often all of dogs get lymphoma. And it's a paper by Edwards et al. from 2003. And it was looking at dogs in the UK. And they found an incidence of 114 lymphoma diagnoses per 100,000 dogs. And, and so that's like, I want to say that's 0.1% about. And, and when you told me this, my jaw dropped. Yeah, right. <laughs> because of just my sample. I, I Everyone I know has dogs. Like I don't really have non-dog people in my life. And they're lovely. They're lovely. Non-dog. I know a lot of people whose dogs have died of lymphoma <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Like a way bigger than 0.1%. Yeah. I would go so far as to say maybe like 25%. 25% of people you know their dogs died of lymphoma, really? Because I know a lot. So yeah, like oh. we're talking like hundreds of people here. But if I'm if I well, had to write down if I had to write down of all lymphoma. the names, if I had to write down all the names of all the dogs that have died of lymphoma that I know in the last five years. My guess is it's not going to be lower than 10%. Wow. Okay. So that's a lot more than 0.1. So, so let's, I would love to just unpack all the stuff going on there. And the first possibility I want to float before we talk about whether the 0.1% is wrong, because we will talk about that, is whether the 25% is wrong. Because perhaps when people's dogs die of lymphoma, you're more likely to know and you're more likely to remembering. Yeah, for sure. So I think there's a lot of people out there. It's just, it's... Uh, it's really, really hard to separate that kind of emotionality from assessing numbers. And I say this as someone who is utter crap at assessing numbers. People are always saying things to me like, how'd your talk go? How many people came to your talk? And I'm like, I don't know, between 20 and 100. <laughs> right, right. No, I think 25% was probably me being very hyperbolic. But just now I'm just kind of making a tally. I've come up with 10 dog names just now thinking. Yeah. And those are dogs that I can name who I knew versus like the number is bigger than that. If you actually count in just people I'm friends with on Facebook, who I don't actually know who I see right. that their dog died of lymphoma. So well, I have the kind of friends who post, but their right. dog died of lymphoma. Well, so well exactly. Right. But so let's, let's go so into it, not from my experience, but from this data. Yeah. And I, the reason I wanted to talk about your experience, I mean, partly was because I love telling you that you're wrong about things because I don't get to do that very often. It doesn't happen but, that much. But. <laughs> <laughs> but I also wanted to point out to other people 
that this is why going with your personal experience is is not Absolutely. always best. That's why we have scientific studies that someone can go out there and pour through the data and get different numbers. However, that doesn't mean that this study is correct about the true prevalence, which again, we don't know what that is. So some things I thought about looking at this when I was like, holy crap, those numbers are really different. So first of all, this study took place in 2003. So that's almost 20 years ago. And is it possible that there were fewer people taking their dogs to the hospital and actually getting a lymphoma diagnosis back then? Like maybe the dog was not well and was elderly and people were more likely to just have it euthanized without having it actually diagnosed. And by the way, Sarah, I think you probably tend to hang out with people who get their dogs diagnosed. Number one, they're diagnosed. Number two, out of these 10, and this is interesting for our conversation and talks, I think out of these 10, four are basically eight of them are of are split between two breeds that are kind of known to have. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. So well. like, then there's that, right. Which is what yeah. we're actually talking about. This is what we're talking about. That, those numbers are wildly different though, right? Like 0.1% versus 10% versus again, when we talk about Goldens and all of cancer, it's 70%. I don't know what the percentage of lymphoma is, but I know that Goldens get lymphoma. That is, first of all, lymphoma is very common as a form of cancer. And second of all, Goldens are like lymphoma, hemangiosarcoma. They really like those two, particularly, yeah. um, which yeah. is why I sort of went for like, maybe it's 50%, maybe it's 30%. I don't know, but it's a lot more than 0.1%. So, and again, I'm not a hard ass about when I wave the magic wand and also nobody's coming to me to ask me about waving the magic wand. So there, there are not conversations on the Facebook group where people are like, you know, out in the real world in all of dogs, um, you should be aiming for 0.1% lymphoma. And then the other thing is like 0.1%, that's tiny. So maybe you have no lymphoma in your breeding population at all. And then all of a sudden you have this litter so there's a couple of possibilities. Maybe all of a sudden you have a litter and one of the dogs has lymphoma and you've bred 50 dogs in your life. And now one in 50 has lymphoma and that's a lot more than 0.1%, but it's because you have a tiny sample size of 50. Right. So maybe if you bred a hundred thousand dogs, you wouldn't get so any how, others with lymphoma. So there's that. So how do we actually even do that? Do this then, right? Right. And so this brings me back again, first of all, to your goals. So if you um, put some dogs together and you produce one dog with lymphoma or, you know, as sometimes horribly happens, you get a litter where all of a sudden there's a whole lot of one particular genetic disease in that litter. What do you do? And the answer is, do you take it very seriously? Or do you say lymphoma is pretty common in my breeding population and this is, this is as good as it's going to get? Or do you say, this is unacceptable. I need to know what to do and I need resources to help me figure it out. And again, we're trying to provide those resources. And I'm going to say that I don't know breeders personally. I don't know breeders who don't take things like this seriously. Yes. What I do know is that there are people involved in certain breeds who have decided that they are prioritizing um essentially type or just purebred status over maybe avoiding lymphoma etc 
or whatever. Well, right? I, so if you're, and I don't think that they're not taking it seriously. I think that their priorities are such that they'd like to try to tackle this. Over, and it's just like we talked about, it's a different way of breeding than what we're talking about, but they'd like to tackle this over time and over generations rather than panic. Never breed those two dogs again. And there's, and there's a happy medium there. Um, but yeah. let me, let me say that when I said not take it seriously, like when those words came out of my mouth, I was like, Oh, I shouldn't have said it that way. This is unscripted. It depends on what you mean by take it seriously. So one thing is if you have a dog you want to breed and you're looking for a dog to breed them to, and there's some lymphoma in your dog's past, but they're a really good breeding candidate. Can you find another dog with no lymphoma in their ancestry to breed to? Because yeah. that would that would be ideal, right? Or yeah. are you going to say, because I'm breeding within this closed stud book, I'm going to have to accept that there's some lymphoma in both of their ancestries. I will try to make it be as far back as possible. Right. And I may have to accept that it's there, but it's not reported. Oh, yeah. Another problem. But there are no options for me within my closed stud book in which there's no lymphoma or DCM or hip dysplasia or whatever it is you're talking about. Right. There are no options within my closed stud book where I can, you know, and I recognize again, like maybe your bitch is really, really lovely. And there was lymphoma some generations ago. And I recognize that she may still be an excellent breeding prospect, but the way to then make sure, you know, you sort of look at, well, what are the problems with this particular breeding dog? And now I want to select a mate who minimizes those problems. And within a closed stud book, often that's really hard to do. So when we're talking about breeding for function as including breeding to avoid genetic diseases, would it be fair to say that what we're kind of assuming is that something like I'm going to use von Willebrand's disease as an example, would not exist in a general population of dogs that was being, that was reproducing kind of via natural selection? Yeah, good question. Um, no, I think, I think it would probably exist. There's, so the, the best example of why some diseases actually get selected for is in humans with sickle cell disease, which the carriers of it don't have sickle cell disease. They're heterozygous for it. So they have one allele for it and they have increased resistance to malaria. But then those who actually have the disease, if they're, they're homozygous, they get two alleles, two risk alleles. Um, then they have sickle cell disease and that is not a fun disease to have, but it continued to be, has continued to be selected for in the population because the heterozygotes have an advantage again, against malaria. And von Willebrand's, we don't know this for sure, but I have heard hypotheses that von Willebrand's carriers might actually have a lower risk of cancer. And so there may actually be, again, a heterozygote advantage to von Willebrand's. So I think it probably would exist in the free breeding population. But again, talking about incidence of it, I think the incidence would be much lower. And the problem comes when we start breeding for one thing, and then for whatever reason, founder effect, genetic drift, for whatever reason, something that we don't want comes along with it. And now we have a closed population and it's hard to get rid of the suddenly much higher incidence of whatever, be it von Willebrand's or so. Um, 
that's what I'd say is that what we're looking at is this difference in, in incidence or prevalence is that these things are going to happen, but they aren't, there, there is some level at which they would happen in the random breeding population. And that's the level that we want to be aiming for. Because you're, you're not going to breed 100% healthy dogs 100% of the time. I really wish you could. <laughs> like if, some people think they could, they could, maybe they could find a breeder that's going to do that, but that's not realistic, right? There's going to be disease, right. but we don't have to increase it beyond what we're seeing in the, in this sort of the massive population of dogdom. And the functional dog collaborative's interest would be in helping people providing resources to people who are interested in reducing the incidence of certain things that are already present in their breed or their breeding population, interested in just anybody breeding for better function and the physical side of better function being low incidence of genetic disease. Right. Ability, exactly. Ability and it's ability to move around freely. Like that's that's what we're talking about is that exactly for those things, we have resources for you to help you do those things. Right. And prioritizing that above other things. And we'll talk about behavioral health in a minute because that's also important, but prioritizing that over what the dog looks like. And again, it's not necessarily about outcrossing. If you can do it without outcrossing, more power to you. I think that's awesome. Again, for some breeds and some diseases that it would be a real challenge to do it without outcrossing. And if you come into this community, you're certainly going to be interacting with people who are breeding mixed breed dogs, multi-generational mixed breed dogs who are outcrossing. And you should be okay with that because they're going to be asking questions and you should be able to tolerate them asking questions without saying, but the problem is that you're breeding a mixed breed dog. Yes. And, you know, essentially if you're going to, if you are looking at two dogs as, as a potential breeding pair and you're saying, we know that this one has fill in the blank behind it that we'd like to get away from, be it lymphoma, be it epilepsy, be it whatever. And you're selecting a breeding partner for this dog and every other dog within the breed that you're breeding also has whatever that thing is behind it. Then by breeding those two dogs, you are making a choice. You are prioritizing maybe a specific morphology, maybe, you know, type, maybe working ability, maybe, maybe whatever. Maybe ability to register with the AKC or to be part of your particular breed club, and I, which and that's has a, a lot very, of value. That's a very real thing that I, that's a value to me. Sure. The you fact that agility. I have, you like to be able to compete in AKC agility which you can do with mixed breed dogs, but we, we won't even go into the fact that like there are problems with it. But more specifically than that, like I am potentially interested in competing at the world level and the dog has to be um, pedigreed to do so. And so there are other priorities and we are not saying this priority is the only one that matters, et cetera. Like it's cool. It's just that what what I know that I personally love is for everybody to just kind of admit and say, yes, I know that it's possible that I will produce whatever by breeding these two dogs, maybe even likely that I will produce whatever it is by breeding these two dogs. And to me, the 
other potential outcomes are worth that risk. Like there are people doing that. I would just appreciate it if everybody just kind of said that out loud rather than saying, you know, but gasp, you can't breed a bit with that because then it will be a mutt. We're saying that with the goal of functionality being paramount, you might sometimes be crossbreeding dogs. Yes. And that is not only okay with us, but kind of needs to be okay in our pool. Right. I mean, so for example, we have this thing on the functional breeding Facebook group called Searching Sunday, where people will come and they'll ask, can I get breeder recommendations for like this particular breed of dog? Mm-hmm. And this is a Facebook group where we are going to hopefully push you towards breeders that are at least attempting to meet the goals we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. If that is not the kind of breeder that you're looking for, then this is not the Facebook group to ask about breeders. There are other places to go. So that's, and that's, I'm just sort of circling back to, there's just different ways of breeding dogs. There's different ways of choosing the next dog that you want. And this is just one. So just recognizing that there's this separate approach and that we would really like people to just be okay with it. This, this is a different way of doing things. That's fine. It doesn't, it doesn't and shouldn't threaten other ways of breeding. Agreed. And I think, so I think we've really um, touched on the, what we mean by functional when we're talking about physical health. Now let's talk about behavioral health. Yes. So, um, and again, I mean, behavioral health in a lot of ways is even harder to achieve a guarantee of or, or a, a high likelihood of than, you know, absence of genetic diseases because early socialization is so important for behavioral health. Um, and so one of the things that we do is talk about how important early socialization is, but genetics are also important. So, so the, again, you know, how do we define functionality in terms of behavioral health? And actually, um, thank you very much, Sarah, you helped me when I was writing this up initially. So we talk about minimal fear of unknown humans, minimal fear of unknown dogs, maximal ability to cope with reasonable new environments like a new farm for a farm dog or a new city for a city dog, minimal behavioral pathologies such as separation anxiety, compulsive disorder, minimal unchanneled aggression. And then we we recognize that aggression as part of an ethical sport like bitey sports or a job like livestock guarding is acceptable. Uh, but we just don't want to see it extending out of that context into the rest of the dog's life. So I think there's a lot, again, to unpack there because we kept using the words minimal and maximal and reasonable. And again, those are all very subjective and not very objective. But right. I'm I'm trying to get across that like a farm dog doesn't have to be able to tolerate New York City. Why? <laughs> you don't, that's not necessary. Uh, that that's an unreasonable new environment to put that dog in, but a city dog should be able to tolerate a city. I'm finding an interesting thing coming up in my head, which is that one of the first things that we talked about was functional has kind of, we're trying to give it one umbrella definition, trying to give it one kind of thing that it is. And then in addition to that, you could be breeding for a job that that's not the same thing as what we're talking about. So like 
people arguing that a pug that can't breathe well enough to do much more than lay on the couch is functional because it's supposed to be just laying on the couch. We would disagree with that. Yes. That that's not functional. That's, that's more about job selection and the dog can do the job. So then why is it okay for a dog independent for farm life to not be able to cope with the city? I mean, I think there's a limit to what can be accomplished in that kind of flexibility. I think it's I, it's lovely if you can breed the kind of dog who can be great in the farm and then also make the transition to city life. Mm-hmm. But it's it's just, to me, honestly, unreasonable to expect that you'd be able to do that frequently in your particular breeding population because that's really hard. So I'm I was trying to talk about reasonable expectations for dogs being able to fit into their lives and be comfortable in their lives without behavioral pathologies that provided them with welfare issues. Um, if there's something that a dog is never going to be expected to do, I don't think you really have to breed for that. I think you do have to be cautious if you're breeding farm dogs and someone from a very urban area comes and wants to buy one of your dogs. I think you need to be very thoughtful about whether your dog is going to do well in that area. And that's sort of separate <laughs> from, um, from whether you've bred functional dogs who are able to adapt to a, a particular life. What do you think about it's what I just tricky. said? It's a little tricky, right? Yeah. Because yeah. I, I fully get where you're, where you're coming from and I, I'm, I'm not even disagreeing, but I think it's interesting. I think it's important for us to dig into where there are differences here. And I think for me, it comes back to that the dog is a thinking, feeling being of its own accord. Yeah. And that functional has to come back to that fact. And so if the pug, and I'm saying pug intentionally because my entire family has them and I feel very attached to them personally. And so I feel like it's more fair for me to pick on them than some of the other (laughs) breaky (laughs) breeds. If that I remember that I know that the pug itself Like I like him for his just day-to-day life to not be more comfortable with the oxygen tube down his throat coming out of surgery than he is just breathing on his own. Yeah. Then if I come to the farm dog again, I say, you are a thinking, feeling creature all on your own. And so if you are able to easily cope with the stressors of your general existence yeah and I'm going to call that functional and what we then what our responsibility then has to be is and then what is that existence going to be for this population of dogs I mean it really comes down to welfare right yes like I could summarize it by saying the dog should have good welfare and that just means being physically and emotionally comfortable in his life physically and emotionally comfortable and but I felt like I had to unpack that a little bit more but that's basically what it is that is basically what it is and I'm glad that we've unpacked it further than that what's interesting is then I think it comes it comes back to breeding goals because if I'm breeding livestock guardians with functionality in mind meaning I'd like them to be free of 
orthopedic disease that makes their life painful for them. I'd like them to be able to breathe. I'd like them blah, blah, blah. Then I also know what the right environment is for them. And then as a breeder, I'm selecting dogs who are behaviorally functional in that environment. And then it's also my responsibility to not sell them outside of that environment. Right. Right. Because it's not just about genetics. It's also about socialization, making good relationships with with the people who buy puppies from you, making sure you're placing puppies um, thoughtfully and well. And all of these things are hard. We recognize you're not going to be perfect in all of those things. You should be making an effort. Right. And so when we talk about what functional means and we talk about behavior, we are talking about breeding dogs. That's what the Functional Dog Collaborative is is about. And so when it comes to the behavior side, the breeding practices side comes into it really heavily as far as functional, you know, having function as a primary goal of your breeding program also means that you know the right environment for these dogs that you're producing. And if that environment is intended to be an average family home in suburbia with children, then aiming to breed dogs who feel safe and well and comfortable in that environment is, that's what functional breeding is. Yes. And that does include the socialization you provide them. It does include the home selection that you do. And coming back to your example of the pug, we might say, but the pug is happy in that environment because he just sits on the couch. And I think I would answer that really all dogs need to be able to move their bodies around and go out for a walk, hopefully in nature. I know that's your personal belief. And that if a dog can't do that, then there is a welfare issue. Right. We're coming down to what dogs as a species kind of should generally be able to do. Not dogs as a breed, but as breeds, but as a species. It's kind of like, you know, if we're talking about, I think nobody would argue with us if we were talking about breeding a population of something else that is not commonly like tampered with, with people or by people. So I'm just going to get really wild with an example here that's not real because that's what I like to do let's say that we're breeding tigers for the I was going to go with flying purple people eaters you were going to go with not a real thing I mean or is is it or is it but I mean you could even talk about cats I think that'll get too complicated so let me stay with because people do breed cats the way that they breed dogs, just in yeah, large numbers. not as much. You're right. Much smaller numbers. But yeah, my family, whole family has pugs. Also, my sister has a Persian. So like there's- Okay, fair enough. All happen. As I said it, I was um, like, mm, but Persians, yeah. So let's say though that I'm breeding, that, that people breed and show tigers. Let's just say okay. that they do. Okay. Um, or let's say this is a new hobby people are picking up. And- I've decided that I like a specific morphology in my tigers and that morphology restricts them from doing a lot of tigery things. They cannot run and chase prey. So they are dependent on me to feed them because of this morphology I'm breeding for. 
I'm picturing a sort of exotic bully situation, but a tiger. Okay. Like I'm, I'm picturing some orthopedic differences between the general population of tigers and this morphology that I like in my tigers. So my tigers can't chase and kill prey, but that's fine. Cause I feed them. My tigers can't swim, but I don't even have a pool. So they don't know that they're missing out on a pool. And my tigers also have a hard time breathing in the sun. So they don't sunbathe. They're usually laying in the shade. Now there are three natural, normal tiger behaviors, hunting, killing prey, swimming, and sunbathing that my population of tigers will not have access to in their life because of the way that I've designed them. Are there I think benefits about to that, the tiger from the way you've designed them? The benefit to the tiger is that I really like them. They come with a more docile personality for sure. Mm-hmm. So they come with a more docile personality and are probably more functional in these pet homes that I'm selling them into mm-hmm. than, than a general population tiger. And so in doing that, I've removed some of their tigerness. And would you say that the removal of this tigerness is in contrast to the goal of function? Yes. You would. I'd say that's a good example. And I think if I were doing this, I would go to prison and there would be documentaries about me. (laughs) But I think I probably made a lot of enemies just by talking about it like that. But that's okay, because that's fine. It's what you do. So good at it. But what you were just saying is that, okay, so if a dog can't go on a decompression walk, an off-leash nature walk, if a dog can't eat, I mean, I feel strongly about this. The dog should be able to eat a variety of dog-safe foods. Yeah. I don't think it's okay to breed a population of dogs that only has to eat a vegetarian diet. I don't think it's okay to breed a population of dogs that can't eat a variety of meats and grains and fruits and vegetables. Like I think dogs should be able to eat all the things. Yep. So, right. Like for me, welfare is I can exercise off leash in nature, given proper training and kind of, you know, safety and whatever I can eat stuff. That's generally dog safe. I can run and play like a dog, you know, I can swim if I choose to like, this is dogness to me. Right. Dogness, right. Is, right. Me too. dogness is being able to roll in horseshit and <laughs> <laughs> and get yelled at. <laughs> yeah. Roll in horseshit and swim in the lake and you know, chase a bunny or what like I th- this is dogness. And what we get back to is that breeding for function is breeding for is making sure that dogness is protected right. in our efforts. Right. And, and, and I, not, I, and I, and I want to say that within dogness, one of the amazing things about dogs that I think we all love is that within dogness, there's an incredible range of morphologies and yes. behavioral types. Like, and, and that is a good thing. That's what I was just about to say is that I, I also have, I have two border collies and one Icelandic sheepdog. My Icelandic and my border collies are so different. And in fact, my two border collies are so different from each other. And I appreciate this. I like that they're really different. Like if I look at Felix and I look at Raya, Felix being seven-year-old border collie, Raya being one and a half-year-old Icelandic, they're so morphologically different. Their personalities are so different. There's a huge difference here. Like I don't 
think all dogs should look and act the same, really far from it. Right. They both have full access to their dogness because they both can move freely without pain and they both can eat a variety of foods and they both like they they both have wide access to dogness there's nothing about them specifically that limits it versus like well except for some behavioral stuff like felix is sound sensitive Mm. that limits some of his ability of dogness and i don't like that i too live with a sound sensitive dog and i feel your pain and I work with a lot of them, as you know, like that's, it's a, because a lot of my um, clientele are herding dogs in which the, the prevalence, is that the right word, <laughs> is high. <laughs> is high of this. In casual uh, speech, it really doesn't matter. In casual speech, which is all I'm ever using, the prevalence of <laughs> noise sensitivity. So, right. so the, the really incidence high. is what you see. And then the true prevalence is what's what's actually out there. Or incidence is the word I wanted. But yeah, so that, yeah, the incidence is what you're seeing. And so when we're talking about breeding for behavioral function, which is how we got started on this rabbit hole, we're saying behaviorally, what is a dog? Yeah. And then if we're, we're also making them be other things, which I'm in favor of. Like I like a little bit more intense, a little bit more edgy of a dog. Yeah. But are we still seeking function within that kind of edginess? And then being sure that breeding for function also means that I, as a breeder, am smart about the environments that I put my dogs in because right. in certain environments, their welfare will will suffer and their access to their dogness will be right. will be limited. Right. Like if I were moving to Manhattan tomorrow, Felix would need to live somewhere else. Right. It wouldn't be fair for him to come with me. Right. And we'd both bleed out because we're set, we're like attached at the spleen. So <laughs> that's just not gonna happen. <laughs> not to mention how much my welfare would suffer if I lived in a big city like that. But So when the FTC goes about trying to make guidelines, it feels to me that it always kind of circles back to this welfare piece. Right. We are a weird balance between a breeding organization and an animal welfare organization. And I, I, there's animal welfare organizations who have some frustration with us for supporting breeding. And there's some breeders that have frustration with us for being so focused on animal welfare. So Jessica, you've said the words animal welfare quite a few times. And so I think this is a really good time for us to talk about animal welfare versus animal rights. Yes. Kind of what those things mean and where the FDC stands on those Yeah, things. that's a really important distinction for sure. So welfare... Um, um, one definition that I agree with is that, you know, animal welfare is, is the acknowledgement that we will use animals for a variety of reasons. And that that's okay, as long as we provide living conditions for them where they can reach the fullness of their biological capacities, and that they can kind of avoid avoid suffering as much as possible. So that's the dogness that I keep talking about. Exactly. Is that animal welfare would state that we have a responsibility to provide them space for their dogness. So I think that the definition of animal rights gets a little bit fuzzier. Do you want to talk about that? 
Yeah. So let me start out by saying everything that you said about animal welfare is very much what the FTC stands for. Um, I do not consider us an animal rights organization. So animal rights, I mean, different organizations will define it in different ways, but it's very much about limiting usage of animals and saying that it is not appropriate to use animals for our own needs. And in the case of dogs, we do use them. And that's that's fine. It's their welfare that I'm very concerned about. So we use them for sports. We use them for companionship. We use them for work, right? We use them to help us run farms. We use them as assistance animals for people with disabilities. You know, what am I missing? We use them for all kinds of things. And where would we be without them? And the FTC absolutely supports that and recognizes that there are a bunch of different jobs that dogs do. A lot of the conversation that we have is around dogs as companions, but we are absolutely here to support dogs as, um, you know, sports team partners and um, working in various capacities as well. So I'm just going to say it again for the people in the back, that the Functional Dog Collaborative is not an animal rights organization. It is not. Correct. We are really concerned with animal welfare. Yes. And that is not in opposition to the utilization of dogs for breeding, companionship, work, sports, etc. Right. Yes. A hundred percent. Okay. So we've talked about functionality as a goal. Let's just talk about a couple of ways to get to that goal. Because we have talked about the ways that, you know, people do breed dogs that are not necessarily the way that the FDC is helping people breed dogs. How are we, how are we getting closer to that goal of functionality in terms of physical health? Yeah. So, I mean, we've talked ad nauseum in this interview about looking at a dog's ancestry and making careful mate selections so that if you have a particular problem on one side, you not match it up with a problem on the other side, right? And we've we've talked about that in terms of outcrossing, but whether you're talking about outcrossing or you're talking about breeding within a breed, or you're talking about intentional mixed breeding, that is something that we think is very important, that you know what you have as much as possible and that you make smart choices based on what you have. Um, but that is not all of it because part of knowing what you have is doing health testing. And here again, again, I, I really wish that I could give people a list of if you do these health and genetic tests, you will be, you know, the magic wand. But because we are trying to support so many different breeds, outcrosses, um, first generation mixes, multi-generation mixes, there is no recipe for everybody. However, we do strongly feel that you're not going to get to where we support you being unless you do a fair amount of health testing. It's going to, that's going to vary enormously by different breeding programs, but I would find it hard to imagine a breeding program that could truly be functional without doing health testing. So very much pro health testing yes. for, for the goal of uh, functional physical health. What are we doing about behavioral health? So again, I mean, unfortunately there's no real tests. Um, we talk about, there's certainly been a lot of conversation about um, what a lot of people call temperament tests, what I like to call a behavioral assessment where you do puppy testing. Um, that can be a useful tool for some people. It's important to recognize that puppies are going to change a lot after eight weeks after they go home. Um, so that's not 
the, you know, the perfect black and white tool that everyone wishes it could be. Again, looking at ancestry. So if you have a dog who has behavioral issues or has close relatives with behavioral issues, then probably not breeding that dog. Or if the issues are very mild or they're not such close relatives, then match the dog with another, with a mate that is very solid in that perspective. And then mm-hmm. of course, really good socialization. Um, and again, we don't have any solid, um, we don't have any rules about what good socialization looks like. Although again, we're happy to work with you to try to figure out what the right thing for you is. I do like to recommend avid dog and puppy culture. Um, sometimes I recommend puppy culture and people are like, oh God, by week four, I'm lucky to be washing my hair, much less um, you know, doing all the things that they recommend. Well, of course, um, but again, it's all about sort of doing your best and doing a, a solid job, not, not necessarily the perfect job because uh, this is you know, life and biology. With the full understanding Say again. We don't know with the full understanding that we don't actually know. Right. Like, right. And again, right. Exactly. We don't know for sure. I know both of those programs have tried hard to be evidence-based, but there's definitely a lack of really solid research out there about what the right ways to raise puppies are again, because there's just so much variety in what's good for one situation is not necessarily best for another. And then again, thoughtful placement, right? Not whoever emails me and has the money gets the dog but I have a conversation with the person and make sure that it's going to be a good, a good placement. And what saying that we also are very, we find inclusivity to be very important. So at that time, also being open-minded and really having a conversation with someone. So not necessarily having a rule, like if there's no fenced yard, the dog can't go home that is very limiting to certain groups of people. But if there's no fenced yard, that's something that I want to talk through with someone and make sure they have a plan for getting the dog safe and appropriate exercise, but really making sure that it's, it's a good placement. And again, we, you know, the FTC just recognizes as an organization that there is a lot of nuance in every single situation. And that's why there's resources, there's help, there's conversations right. that are being had rather than just a blanket, this is the right way to do things. Yeah, I, I wish there could be rules. Honestly, it'd be so much I easier for if there rules. was just a checkbox. No, I love rules. That would be great. Right? Because you like border collies. They like rules too. Border collies, I would like the rules for making the best border collie. That would make my life a lot easier. Yes. Um, Yeah, I wish it worked that way. Yeah. So I think that, you know, to kind of tie up our conversation, it's we are kind of, you know, the Functional Dog Collaborative is talking about the goal of functionality. We've defined what that is put out statements on what that is and nowhere in our statements does it say that we don't want other people to do anything a different way correct right it's all positive and not negative right so it's all about if you want to breed this way here are the guidelines here are the goals more important mm-hmm. than guidelines here are the goals for what we mean by this type of breeding. And we would love to talk with other people who are interested in this type of breeding. But if this is not the type of breeding and there's other ways to go about it. And if this is not for you, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. And it's, I think that's kind of the thing is that there are a lot of conversations going on, um, especially in regards to legislature around dog breeding. And so I think people get really 
nervous anytime we recommend we might discuss say outcrossing to improve health in a in a closed population that you can't get away from certain problems the functional dog collaborative would say reaching outside of that population is your best move we aren't saying oh and also we are going to vote to make you not allowed to stay in that population right now for sure we don't have anything to do with politics I'm trying to think of any there's any way that we've ever had anything to do with politics. We don't make Not any political statements. Yeah. And I'll also say that I personally strongly believe that passing laws telling people what not to do is rarely the right way to get them to do what you want them to do. You and I both- That's just good behavioral science. Don't tell anybody what not to do. Tell them what, you know, you help do. them arrange your environment so that yes. the choices yes. that you like are the most likely choices to be yes. made. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what, so that's exactly what I'm trying to do, right? Is say, so first of all, here's our goals. If you agree with these goals, then come join the community and we'll have a conversation about what to do. I am not about telling people what not to do or having laws. And I know that there, you know, every so often there'll be someone on the Facebook group who will be like, oh, there should be a law. And when I see that, I tend to chime in and be like, that's just eh. not the right solution, people. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else that we should add to our conversation just, about what? Yeah, I just, I want to emphasize that I, I don't want to be threatening. I don't want to threaten other people's, you know, way of life for a lot of people, the way they breed dogs and the, the, the community that they're a part of is really important to them. And I get that I am parts of a part of various communities that are really important to me. And I don't want to see them threatened either. And I don't want to threaten people. What I want is to be able to support a community of, you know, a, just a community of doing things its own way. And I don't, you know, I don't want to threaten other communities, but I don't want them to threaten us either. So that's sort of, that's where I stand is just, I'm, I'm trying to build this thing. We, I mean, my amazing group of volunteers, we are all, this community is trying to build this thing. We're not trying to hurt other people. Really far from it, actually. Yeah, really we're trying to help people. All right. I think that's a good place to end. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Jessica. This is enlightening as usual. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave me a review. If you'd like to support this podcast, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. You might even hear me answer your question on the show. For more content like the stuff you heard here, check out my online courses at cog-dog-classroom.teachable.com.